Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Good to see you all. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn it with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, We'll be looking at the last few verses of chapter 8 and then going into chapter 9. And we'll be considering Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Yeah, that's that's a name. I practiced. I practiced and practiced. Mephibosheth. Laura, you'll be very proud. She's here. There you are. Okay, well, you, you look it up and make sure I'm doing it right. Mephibosheth. Okay, I'm also going to see say primogeniture. So you go ahead and look that word up now so you're ready. <laughs> Who is Mephibosheth? And what does he have to do with the kingdom of God? What does he have to do with the table of the Lord? What does he have to teach us today? Before we go, begin, let's pray. Bow, with, bow your heads with me. Lord God, we thank you so much. For the ministry of Mephibosheth, we thank you for the line of Jonathan. We thank you, Lord, for the household of Saul and the household of David. Lord, they um, are examples to us of both what to do and what not to do, uh, how to serve you and how not to serve you, how to serve one another and not serve one another. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word now that you would give us clarity and understanding, that you would convict us of our sins, and that you would comfort us in our trials and tribulations. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. Now, for review, David made a covenant with Jonathan way back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, which concluded thus, And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, Jonathan says, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. David's enemies have, in fact, been destroyed. That's what we have been looking at. And so now, in a moment of peace, David remembers promises that he made to his friend. Saul's house has fallen. Saul's house has suffered. First, Saul and his three sons died in battle. Then Joab's men detained Abner, Saul's brother, to have murdered. Ishbosheth was likewise murdered. He was the pretender king by members of his own tribe. Saul's house has been torn down. Now, all this slaughter leads David to inquire if anyone remains. So many people have died. His question is, is there anybody left? Is there anybody left who might receive the said, the covenant loyalty, the covenant love that I promised to Jonathan? That's what said is, a loyalty shown for loyalty received. He has this love. He has this kindness, and he wants to bestow it on Jonathan's household, Saul's household, if there is anybody left. Now, in this chapter, David will fulfill a pledge that he also made to Saul, believe it or not. Back in 1 Samuel 24, 21 to 22, it says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. That's what Saul said. And David swore this to Saul. Now, why would he swear such a thing to such a horrible enemy? This is the kind of man that David is. He understands the conflict that they have with one another, and he promises that he will not visit it on Saul's children once Saul is no more. The remaining family member is a challenge to David, truly, in the sense that he is in the line to take Saul's throne. If you want to have have an argument about whether or not David is legitimate. You have this other person. He's the grandson of Saul. And, and if you wanted, you could get involved into intrigues and make Mesh, uh, Mephibosheth the king. 
So he's a rival in this sense. He, he's actually a threat to David's household. Now, if you study history, what you find out is if such a person is found to exist, generally the sitting king kills them. Right? We have our, our enemies put in prison. We have our enemies silenced. We have our enemies removed. You don't elevate your enemies. You don't elevate rivals. But what we're going to find out is that Mephibosheth is not an actual rival. He can't stand up to David, truly. Not in stature nor in combat. He isn't a real rival at all. And what you're going to see here is that this is not politics as usual. This is um, not the kind of nonsense that you have going on in D.C. This is not the kind of nonsense that you had going on in England. Uh, during the Wars of the Roses or when the Protestants and Catholics were fighting and the Catholics get in charge and they slaughter all the Protestants and the Protestants get in charge and they start slaughtering all the Catholics. That, that's what you find all the time in the judges and kings in the ancient Near East. That's how people handle business. And what we're going to see is that these two men handle their rivalry, handle their lack of peace, handle their conflict in a very different way. Now, through this whole narrative, David is seen as the supreme Israelite, the example of covenant faithfulness, this yesed that I'm talking about, this loyalty shown for loyalty received. Yesed was the chief virtue in Israel because God used this word to, re, to identify himself. He is the God of yesed. He is the God of loving kindness. He, and, and if you want to be virtuous, you will be like him. That's why it was such a big deal. And so anybody who has a lot of yesed, anybody who has a lot of covenant loyalty and a covenant love and grace, as we might call it, is somebody who is like God, a heart like God's. Now, judged by David's own demanding criteria, as he states in Psalm 15:1, this is what he says. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who? Who could do it? Well, in Psalm 15, he answers his own question. In verse 4, he says, He who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. David proves himself worthy to live on the Lord's holy hill by keeping his oath to Jonathan. At this point, who is going to hold him to it? Who in David's house? Who in all of Israel is going to come to David and say, Hey, I know what you promised Jonathan when you were living in the wilderness. Nobody's going to come to him. Nobody's going to hold him to this. Why is he keeping promises to people who are dead? Why is he keeping promises to households that have fallen? Why is he doing this other than it is the right thing to do? And this is where we see his heart for God. He is doing this because it is the right thing to do. He is doing this because those who live on God's mountain are people who swear to their hurt and keep their word. He adheres to his own principles, remembering covenant promises long after everyone else has forgotten them. And, and, and arguably, did most people know of them? Right? You keep a promise, and later on, it's not as advantageous to keep it. You know how easy it is, especially if nobody remembers? Especially if you have all the power in the land? Just be like, eh, whatever. <laughs> but David doesn't go, eh, whatever. David is like his Lord. There is no reason for David to do what he is about to do, except that it is the right thing to do. It says in Psalm 77, verse 8, has Yahweh's steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? No, see, that steadfast love, that's Yesed. The Yesed of God is attached to the fact that he keeps his promises. Now, 
How would we know what he promised Moses unless he told us? How would we know what the Lord promised Abraham unless the Lord himself told us? If you don't tell the new generation, you give it a little bit of time, who's going to remember what the Lord promised us? But the Lord makes promises to men, men of all people, and then he keeps them. And then he tells them, he says, hey, listen, here, I'm going to write all the promises that I've ever made to mankind in this book, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to keep these promises. And that is his steadfast love. That is his yesed. That is his loving kindness. To make promises that he doesn't need to make with people who don't deserve them, to remind them constantly of them, and then to keep them. And this is exactly what David is like. David could be like, eh, whatever. But he tells, I've made these promises, and I'm going to keep these promises. And in this, he is exactly like Yahweh. Even as David's house increases... Even as he has received fame and power and glory and riches, he has not forgotten a promise he made to a dead man. His house is growing and growing and growing. He has a lot to busy himself with, as, as, as we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 16 through 18. This is, this is what David has going on. He's a busy man. It says, Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now, with all those names, I would just be busy trying to keep who's who, especially when they rhyme like that. Wait, who are you again? Oh, I'm appointing somebody else to a task? But he's not too busy to remember his promises. That's the key. Now, earlier we noted that throughout 2 Samuel, there is a cycle that keeps repeating. Victory followed by house building. Chapter 8 concludes with a list of David's household servants at the end of his victories. He has a bunch of victories, and then we're told that his household increases through a whole bunch of servants. Among the officials established to oversee his kingdom is Jehoshaphat, a recorder, a word that comes from the verb zakar, to remember. Jehoshaphat, the recorder, kept David's reign in permanent memory by keeping chronicles. We have him to thank for the fact that we know what happened to David. He is the one who wrote down all of the things that we're going to be learning in 2 Samuel originally. Now, David's sons are called priests. They were certainly not Levitical priests, since they were not in the tribe of Levi. Besides, the text also lists Zadok as a priest. Priests are essentially servants in a royal household. That's if you're a servant in a royal household, you could be called a priest. That's what a priest is. David, the anointed son of God, has priests who serve him, and it's his own sons. Just like the Lord God has a household, and in his house, his sons serve him, and they are called priests. Now, this sets us up for chapter 9, which is all about David's household servants. David's household is a place of loving kindness. It's a place of growth and, and fruitfulness and dominion of covenant faithfulness that extends to fallen and undeserving people. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, or sorry, 1 through 5. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, 
at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now the chapter provides an indication of the passing of time here. Mephibosheth, who now has a young son of his own, according to verse 12, which we haven't gotten to yet, but that's what it's going to say. He has a son. He was five years old at the death of his father. So we're only eight chapters into this book, but we can tell that a great deal of time has passed. He was five years old when he heard about his father, or his, his father, Jonathan, dying. And this is what happened to the poor boy. Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the poor boy who just lost father and grandfather and the entire household and is no longer going to be the king of anything is trying to flee with his nursemaid and gets dropped. He's fallen. He's crippled. As C.S. Lewis said, he's bent. And our household, Adam, <laughs> fell. And, and as again, C.S. Lewis says, we became bent. And Mephibosheth is bent. He doesn't work properly. Now, in the intervening years, member, uh, members of the previous king's household made themselves very scarce, hence David's need of information. David's query throws the net wider than his promises require, extending his generosity to any of Saul's surviving sons or grandsons. He had promised Jonathan. And people tend to forget that there's other, this other promise he made to Saul. So now he's saying, you know, it's not just Jonathan that I loved. It's Saul. Is there anybody left in his house? Anybody? And his motive is clear. He, he intends to show kindness, yes said, for Jonathan's sake. David remembers how much he loved and how much he owed Jonathan. And he's going to now pay back that love, that loyalty, that faithfulness to Jonathan's son, to Saul's household. It underscores that David was not an enemy of the house of Saul, as some people in his early bits of his reign would accuse him of. He was not an enemy of the household of Saul. All the way up till now, who has he put to death in the household of Saul? No one. He has slaughtered no one. He has gone into no solid uh, cities and slaughtered anyone. He hasn't killed anybody. All of the people in Saul's house who have died have been put to death at the hands of other people. David's kindness has a source. That's what it says. He is transferring what he has received. This is what loving your neighbor looks like, a transfer. Remember, it says, we're going to go back to the text. It says, that I may show the kindness of God to him. He doesn't have his own kindness to show. He has God's kindness to show. His kindness, he recognizes, has a source. He's not giving himself credit for this. I am so magnanimous. Find me a crippled boy that I might show my favor. No, he says, find me somebody from Saul's house that I might give God's kindness to them. David has kindness to give because he has received it from the Lord's hand. He is the steward of God's kindness. This is what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now, see, this is one of those times where we think that these ideas, like the fruit of the Spirit, were invented by the apostles. But it's not true. Galatians 5, to 24 says, you know, I'm sure most of us have memorized this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. David has the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, he has the fruit of the Spirit. He has God's love. He has God's kindness. And he is not holding on to these things. He's not grasping these things. He's not keeping these things to himself. He's given these things that he might give them away. David receives so that he may give. He gets so that he may disperse. That is the point. He puts his own passions to death and lets Christ's light shine through him. Ziba, then, a well-to-do servant of Saul's household, had managed the former king's royal estate. He was called in. He's questioned by David. Several details enrich the beauty of this magnificent story. Now, what is the meaning of Mephibosheth's name? It is a little uncertain. But we do know one thing. Uh, Well, people argue whether it means one who scatters shame or from the mouth of shame. Now, in the the way Hebrew works, it's kind of hard to tell which is which. Is it one who scatters shame or or from the mouth of shame? Either way, what we know is that Mephibosheth, like Ishbosheth, includes the word shame in it. He is a man of shame. He is a crippled, broken man of shame who comes from a fallen household. Do you see where the Lord is going with this story? Mephibosheth has suffered shame, not only as a member of Saul's fallen house, but his own lameness. He's not a real Israelite now. He can't serve as a priest. He can't go to war. He can't do all kinds of things that other Israelites can do because he is bent and broken. And this is his shame. When David found him, he was in a place called Lodabar. Now, that that word actually means nothing. So the broken man of shame is living in nothing. And you're like, come on now. And you're like, yes, it was this easy to write this sermon. (laughs) You're like, oh, I get it. The broken man of shame comes from nowhere. And then what happens to him? What happens to him? David brings this man of shame from nowhere to the king's palace. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It's a good question, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Now, this loving kindness, this yesed, means faithfulness to covenant obligations that are expressed in acts of generosity and kindness. It's not just a feeling. It's a feeling with feet. It does things. It has hands. It operates. Loving kindness may operate in a human-to-human covenant, as in here. David shows his loyalty to Jonathan by showing kindness to Jonathan's son. He doesn't just feel warm feelings about him. Oh, Mephibosheth, you're great. I'm just going to stand here and love on you. No. He says, go get the lad, bring him here, set him at my table, and bring the boy a T-bone. Okay? And give him, and whenever I have T-bones, he gets T-bones. Whenever I get garlic bread, he gets garlic bread. Whenever I get diet soda, he gets, no, that's gross. Whenever I get milk, he gets milk. It's not just a feeling. It's, It's actions. It's expressed in what he actually does, how he actually treats Mephibosheth. 
Now, just as the Lord had shown himself faithful to David by doing far more than David asked or imagined, so David is going to do the same for Mephibosheth. See, I'm sorry, Laura. Mephibosheth. Just as he has received unbelievable kindness from God, unbelievable grace from God, unbelievable protection, unbelievable provision, he is now going to do the same thing to Jonathan's boy. Now, this analogy between David's royal kindness and the kindness of Yahweh may be pressed even further by linking Mephibosheth's condition to the ceremonial regulations of the law. Right? It's not really a good Old Testament sermon unless you bring in a little Leviticus. Right? Now we're, now we're getting spicy. According to Leviticus 21, 16 through 24, and everyone's like, oh, yes, of course. Descendants of Aaron with physical deformities were excluded from service at the altar and in the tabernacle. Nope, sorry. If you're bent like this young man, you cannot come in and serve the Lord. Now, one of the qualifications that disqualified a man from priestly service is actually broken feet, according to Leviticus 21.19. If Mephibosheth was a descendant of Aaron, which he's not, I'm just making, um, go with me here for a second his lameness would have disqualified him from serving at the altar. Though a disabled priest was not permitted to serve at the altar, he was allowed to eat from his his priestly portions of the sacrifices according to Leviticus 21.22. So you can't serve in my house, crippled priest, but you can eat at my table. You can't come in here and do sacrifices. You can't come in here and light candles. You can't come in here and touch the showbread. You can't come in here and do the things that priests do, but you can come to the king's table in perpetuity. Now, David's table is not, of course, the same as the Lord's, but David is the human analog of Yahweh. And David is faithfully applying the law. Just because he's lame doesn't mean he should be withheld from the table of the king because he's not withheld from the table of the Lord. Now, appropriately, and perhaps somewhat awkwardly, the lame young man bows down. Now, how difficult do you think this is going to be when your legs don't work properly? You're going to prostrate yourself before a king. Talk about awkward. But Mephibosheth would never have been to the court of the king before now, and he would have, he would have been hardly, hardly be surprising if he felt both fear and resentment at this moment. Why does he want me here? There's not a lot of us left from the house of Saul. And I'm a bent and broken person. Why am I here? What is he going to do? And this is why David says, don't be afraid. He sees what's going on. And this, this I, I don't have the time, but if you go into the New Testament in the Gospels, this is what Jesus is always doing. When the dead dogs and the, and the broken, crippled people from the fallen houses come to him, what is he always telling? Don't be afraid. They understand who they've come before. They understand that they have reason to be afraid. And so he says to them, don't be afraid. And in this moment right here, he is so Christ-like, it, it's, it's stunning. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come. Then proceeds a dialogue reflective of an interchange between a social superior and an inferior. Mephibosheth is not so proud that he doesn't know how he ought to talk. That's what it means. And, and between Samuel and the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 3, in that dialogue that the Lord has with Samuel is very much similar, is very similar to this dialogue between these two. You get who's king, and you get who's the break, broken lame man from Nowhereville. David calls out to Mephibosheth like the father who calls out to the, son, the, to the prodigal son who returns. 
Mephibosheth refers to himself here as your servant. His response to the king's magnanimous pronouncement was one of abject humility. After bowing down once again before David, he calls himself servant. He calls himself a dead dog. And this is exactly the spirit of David. You see that he is not unlike his father, Jonathan. You see here that Jonathan and David and Mephibosheth are of the same tribe. They are cut from the same cloth. 1 Samuel 24, 14. This is what David had to say of himself. After who has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? That's what these people are like. That's what Jonathan was like. That's what David is like. That's what Mephibosheth is like. I am not too big. I am not too proud. I am humble. And, what, and me, compared to you, I'm nothing but a dead dog. He knows who and what he is. He's like that man that stood, right? Remember the, the story that Jesus told? The proud religious folks are down in the front. Thank God I'm not like those folks over there. And there's that man in the back of the room who can hardly lift his eyes because he's so humble. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he is. And he is afraid to come any closer. And that is who Mephibosheth is. That's who he already was. He didn't suddenly become this because David said, come on up to my house. (laughs) He is more like his father than we could possibly realize once you dig into the text. Now, this humility that he shows is received with even great... We're just getting started here. The, 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 the treasures and the presence and the honor are just, are just beginning. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and, and to all the house I have given to your master's grandson... And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and now he was lame in both his feet, just in case you forgot. There is a lame man at the Lord's table. There is a lame, broken, bent, shameful man from nowhere sitting with the king. Now, after establishing the parameters of their relationship by giving the proper exchanges, David issues a magnanimous decree that changes Mephibosheth's fortunes forever. First, David restored to the disfigured, exiled man all the land that had belonged to Saul. Hey, are you hungry for T-bones and garlic bread and milk? Come to my table. Oh, by the way, you can have back your estates. You can have back all the land. You're from nowhere. You got nothing, but hey, how did I give you grand estates? This would have meant that the family estate located about three miles north of Jerusalem in Gibeah would be returned to him. Now, this is a shadow of the king of kings. The world was lost in Adam, and yet we receive it back in Christ, Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is, what I, this, this is what this means. Let's go back. Let's play a little Abraham and, and Yahweh for a moment. 
I want you to go out tonight. Well, Seattle, this may not work. But the next time it's not cloudy at night. I want you to look up into the sky. And I want you to see what few stars you can because of the light pollution. This metaphor is not really working for me as well as I thought. But I want you to see those stars. And I want you to say, those are mine. Because I'm Christ's. And when people start talking about how this is not our world, this is our world because it's our king's world. We are stewards of this place because we are in him. This is our inheritance. The stars are our inheritance. You look around the world and this is ours in Christ. Now, I know, I know, you're like, whoa, wait, stop. I'm a shameful, crippled nobody who doesn't belong from a fallen house. Yes, yes, yes. But when you come to the king's table, you receive his inheritance as your inheritance. That's what it means to be sons. Because to be sons here, it's not based on sex. It's, based, it's a title. It's a legal term. A son inherits. A son takes his father's place. And now the, the, the daughters and the sons be, all become co-heirs with Christ together of the cosmos. Now second, going back to David and Mephibosheth, David gives Mephibosheth a privilege that seemed to have perished the day his father Jonathan had died, the right to board at the king's table. Always, it says. Now Saul had accorded David the same dispensation during his youth, according to 1 Samuel 20, verse 5, and now David extends it to Jonathan's son. David didn't belong at the king's table, and Saul graciously allowed him to come. And who is he? He's nobody. He's a shepherd. He's the seventh son. He, he literally is nobody. And yet, what? He finds favor in the Lord's eyes, and part of that favor, part of that favor of the Lord, is bringing David to the king's table, and now David is doing the same thing to Saul's grandson. And this love that he is showing is not just his love for Jonathan, but his love for his enemy Saul. And we have got to get that. He loves his enemy, and he loves his friend, and he made promises to both, and he will keep both. Now, this perpetual table is the table in which you are sitting in front of this morning. 1 Corinthians 11.20. When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper, isn't it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? But when we come together, we eat. This is why we do it every week. When we gather, this is what we gather to do. This table that you are sitting at here is the king's table given to you in perpetuity. And you're like, okay, wait, I'm just a dead dog, though. It's like, yes, this is called the gospel. The dead dogs get to come and eat at the king's table. Now, third, David provided Mephibosheth with a large contingent of servants and material wealth. He ordered Ziba, Saul's servant, along with his 15 sons and 20 servants, to farm the land that originally belonged to Saul and bring in the crops for Mephibosheth so that Jonathan's son may be provided for. Mephibosheth dependent uh, up to this point on the hospitality of a generous individual, suddenly becomes a very, very rich man. And this is is what they say in the New Testament. I didn't write the verse down. But but why did Jesus become poor? So that he might make you rich. Yeah, here, I'm going to give you the cosmos, but I'm not just going to give you the cosmos. I'm not just going to give you T-bones and garlic bread and milk. I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to make you rich. 
Well, what do you mean rich? Well, he says in Romans, Paul says, what? what? He who gave you his own son, how would he not in him also give you all things? You're like, oh, you mean like a sports car? You mean like a cable package? <laughs> right? And all you can buy from Amazon? No, the real riches, the real gold, the real treasure. Mephibosheth had presumably his entire family, including a young son named Micah, was permanently relocated back in the Benjamite territory in Jerusalem. Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table, even though he was crippled in both feet. David's acceptance of a lame man in his house confirms that the royal pronouncement banning the lame in the royal residence was intended as a figurative reference. Now, this is something that that was back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. At that time, David said something strange. He said this. He said, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let them get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. Now, these Jebusites had referred to themselves as the blind and the lame. And so David at that time was not making a pronouncement that contradicts what he's doing now. He's making fun of the Jebusites. Yeah, oh, you guys are a bunch of lame blind guys? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. You are no longer welcome at my table. But bring me Mephibosheth, whose legs are broken. He can actually come to my table because he's not using the terms in the same way in both places. The kindness of God on which David modeled his kindness was not limited, but freely given to the undeserving as an act of free grace. Jonathan had given gracious help to David when he was driven from the king's table. Now David has been able to show kindness in return by giving to Jonathan's son security and honor and wealth and privilege. Thus the love between David and Jonathan now reaches a new level. And I can say, I can, I, I can say, I know a little something about this because there are men who my father has a relationship with, and there is, there is deep love that goes back many years. But it, it, there's a certain something to it for my father when they, those men show the same love to me. It sort of completes the circle, right? <laughs> it, it, and it's a strange thing. Like you don't just love this person; you love this person's household. Your love for Mephibosheth is the same as your love for Jonathan. And this is the kind of relationship that men are supposed to have. You don't just love your friends, you love your friends' sons, and you treat them as you treat the father. And to receive such a thing, to receive such honor and love, young men, from your father's friends is a great honor. It's a great and glorious thing. And you're like David, and you're like Jonathan, and you're like the Lord God, and you're like his son. Because the, the love that the father and the son have also comes to us, and we're we're included in this triangle of glorious love that we otherwise would have been excluded from. Now, what does this have to do with us? How does this apply? David brought Mephibosheth to his table to eat as a son, and in this we see a picture of the grace of Jesus, the greater David. Though we are members of the house of Adam, a fallen king, the Lord feeds us at his table as, his king, as the king's sons. Though we are enemies, he shows to us the said of God. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there it is. You bent and broken and shameful dogs. <laughs> in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, table fellowship with God is an important element. And that's what this is pointing to. All through the Old do you know that when Jesus held up the bread and held up the wine, that was by no means the first time the Lord had eaten with his people? When two people are at odds with one another, they need to be reconciled. Reconciliation can, of course, be rather superficial. But when it's deep and profound, when it is complete reconciliation, you, you not only become friends again with your former enemy, you have dinner with them. This is how, in relationships. It's right, right? You have a dust-up with some people, and you don't really know that fellowship is restored until you sit down and you eat tacos together. You're like, let's have ribs. You're like sitting there with the ribs, getting all over yourself, and you're like, all right, now, now we're reconciled. That was often the case throughout the Bible. Jacob and Laban made peace to, with one another in Genesis 31, 52 through 54. It says, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of the, their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country together. And these were two who were trying to cheat and murder one another. And how do we know that there's real peace? Because they sat down and had tacos together. Lamb tacos. I think they call those euros. <laughs> David is reconciling two households. He has never laid a hand on anyone from Saul's household. The fallen line of Saul is not now elevated to his table. He's enriched and blessed them beyond what anyone thought was possible. David's table is a table of peace, a table of reconciliation, a table of grace, a table of covenant loyalty and love. Just like his greater descendants, Jesus is his. The fall has made us enemies with God. We are just like Methodosheth. We are from a fallen household, broken and lame, from nowhere, and yet he calls us to his table. God provided food for Adam and Eve before the fall, but they abused that privilege by taking the one fruit that the Lord told them not to. But through Christ, God seeks reconciliation with us. That is so deep, so complete, that he invites us to share meals with him, to sit at his table and break bread with him, to drink from the very cup that he drinks from. Now, the Lord has a long history of this, as I've said. After the great flood, God provided food for Noah and his family, inviting them to eat the flesh of animals as well as the fruit of the garden, Genesis 9. When God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he gave them a sacramental meal, the Passover, the great and beloved Passover, as a memorial of their salvation and their covenant, Exodus 12. When Israel met with God around Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with them as his people had called the 70 elders up to the mountain to eat and drink. It's fascinating. Exodus 24, they ate bread and drank wine with God. In Exodus 24, all the people God provided manna for, supernatural food to eat on their long journey to the promised land. He gave them water and fowl. The tabernacle offerings were offerings of food. The peace offering was a meal. That's why it's called the peace offering, because when you actually go from friends to enemy, or enemies to friends, you make peace at a table. 
And those offerings weren't just some weird thing that they were doing. They were slaughtering the animal, and they were sitting down together after burning a portion of it, and they were eating a meal together because they have true peace, true unity, true reconciliation. Deuteronomy 27, 7, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So a first century Jew would not have been surprised to hear that the Lord's Supper, once he actually believed that Jesus was God, was the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Oh, we're going to sit down and we're going to have wine and drink bread and eat bread together. Is that what we're going to do? Oh, that's what we've been doing with the Lord God since Genesis. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, as when Israel participated in the Passover and all those other meals that I've mentioned, we renew the covenant relationship between our Lord and ourselves, just as Mephibosheth and David did. Every time they sat down together, there is the love renewed. There is the covenant renewed. There is the loyalty renewed. We are the lame, shame-ridden nobodies from nowhere who invited to participate in his table. Meals with God also provide continuing nourishment and fellowship with him. Think of how David in Psalm 23, 5 speaks of God's preparing a table for him amidst his enemies. He nourishes us in the midst of the fight. He joins us on the battlefield and prepares a table for us. God's wisdom in Proverbs 9, 2 invites the young man into her home for a meal. That's what wisdom does. Come, sit, and eat. Ponder these things with me. Think of Jesus, who twice miraculously fed great multitudes. Think of how Jesus, after his resurrection, invited his disciples to do what? Oh, come and eat fish and have bread and eat with me. Why? Because we are reconciled and we have peace. This all anticipates the great meal in heaven the messianic banquet that we are all headed to, the wedding supper of the Lamb, in which we celebrate the consummation of redemption. Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to them, These are the true words of God. Our entire salvific history and the eschatology of our people are represented in the table before you now. Now, is this just merely a thimble of wine? Is that all it is? Is it just bread, just some crumbs that Becky bought at Costco? Hawaiian rolls, for goodness sakes. I mean, we couldn't, I know, Molly, we couldn't come up with something better than, for this, I'm with you. I don't know where I would get bread to represent this, but Hawaiian rolls will do. Why? Because God doesn't mind bent. He doesn't mind broken. He doesn't mind shame. Sorry, Hawaiian rolls. When you eat and drink today amongst the people of God, we are looking back and we are looking forward. And we are looking up. The whole Christian life. Look back. What has he done? What are his promises? Look forward. What what has he promised yet still to do? Look up. Where is he right now? What is he doing? What has he called us to? 1 Corinthians 11.26, where as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you want to do a gospel proclamation? You're doing it every week. When we renew covenant in the Lord's Supper, we are declaring and sharing his yesed. This table and our participation in it is a proclamation. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we should reflect on the past and the present and the future and who we are, whose table we are sitting at, all the covenant meals that have ever come, the, the great supper that's coming at the end, and who we're participating in it with. 
Now, Calvin, who emphasized that Christ is not physically present in the Lord's Supper, but lives physically in heaven, thought that Christ's real spiritual presence in the Supper was not so much his coming to be with us, but our being caught up to heaven to be with him as we join him in the heavenly places. You're being called up every week at this table to the king's table. This meal lifts us from our shame and our lameness from nowhere to the king's table in heaven. In the Eucharist, we, shameful, crippled, fallen sons of Adam, dead dogs that we are, are offered the trees of the garden. We become sons of Abraham, celebrating a victory feast in the king's valley. We become holy ones. We receive holy food as exiles turned to Zion. We eat marrow and fat and drink wine on the lees. The many are made one loaf and commune with the body and blood of Christ. We are the bride celebrating the marriage supper. At the Lord's table, we commit ourselves to shun the table of demons, being transferred from the kingdom of nowhere, darkness, to the table of the Lord's light. David remembered his covenant promises. David transferred the Lord's kindness to others. David lifted up the lowly and downcast. God's heart is David's heart. And in him, we see Christ's heart for us. We too should marvel like Mephibosheth, paying homage, prostrating ourselves before the Lord in service for so great an honor. Who am I but a dead dog? Who am I but a man of shame? Who am I but a fallen son of a nobody house living in Nowhereville? And when we do this, we're not far from the kingdom of heaven, right? Because it's not just about what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. Now listen, Matthew 15, verse 24 to 28 Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Do you hear her humility? Just like Mephibosheth, just like David's, who are we to come and eat here in, 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 in his presence, to be united with such great stories of the history of mankind? Who are we? We don't deserve this, and yet we do it every week. Passover they did every year. Abraham ate with the Lord once, and here you are every single week at his table. We have passed in Christ through the tomb. We have risen where the Lord does, not given crumbs. We renew covenant with him. And what we are given is eternal life, fruit that does not die. And eating it, we become the undying. We feast. We too are given a great estate. We receive the Lord's loving kindness given to Jesus and through Jesus to us. And through us, we proclaim it to the world. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for David and Mephibosheth. We pray, Lord God, that their unity and reconciliation would be our unity and reconciliation both with you and with one another. We pray, Lord God, that as we come to this table, we would understand what it represents, Lord, what it means to us, how it's feeding us, how it's working on us, how we are being lifted up to the king's table. We, we pray, I pray, Lord, that we would be humbled by this, that we would also be encouraged by it, that we would be strengthened by it, and that, Lord, we would live as those nobodies who get to eat at the king's table every week. And amen.